In the year leading up to the 2020 election, we're counting down the biggest scandals in American political history. This is number 12, the election of 1824, when no less than four presidential candidates battled for votes in the House of Representatives, all hoping to secure the presidency. February 9th, 1825. The blustery winds and bone-chilling cold covering Washington, D.C. didn't stop the Capitol building from being packed to the brim. The eager crowd inside had gathered in nervous anticipation to learn who would become the next president of the United States. The presidential race from the previous fall, now down to Secretary of State John Quincy Adams and Andrew Jackson, the beloved former Army general, had run off into the House of Representatives. Neither candidate had won over 50% of the vote in the general election, so it was left to legislators to determine the next commander-in-chief. Andrew Jackson firmly believed he would ultimately triumph. After all, he'd secured the most votes and electors of any candidate that fall. It seemed not only logical, but inevitable to him that the presidency was within reach. But as votes were cast, Jackson slowly lost more and more states. Despite his public favor, Jackson failed to account for one critical factor, the ever-shifting allegiances in Washington, D.C. Welcome to Political Scandals, a ParCast original. I'm Richard. And I'm Kate. You can find all episodes of Political Scandals and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Political Scandals for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Political Scandals in the search bar. Today, we're diving into the presidential election of 1824. When no nominee received a majority of votes, the House of Representatives held a contingent election between the top three candidates. This evolved into a heated and disputed contest with John Quincy Adams and Andrew Jackson as the frontrunners. We'll begin our investigation of this historic election right after this. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like... What the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. There's a new class of blockbuster drugs. Drugs like Ozempic. They're changing bodies. And all of a sudden, just the weight starts falling off. Fortunes. It just got too expensive. They're just bank breakers. And industries. There was a lot of excitement. There was a lot of skepticism. The impact of these drugs from business to health is just beginning. From the journal, Trillion Dollar Shot. Find it in the journal feed wherever you get your podcasts. At the beginning of 1824, after two terms as president, James Monroe was prepared to pass the baton to the next commander-in-chief. 
After his election in 1816, Monroe's presidency ushered in the Era of Good Feelings, when the United States demonstrated unprecedented strength and unity under a one-party government. The Democratic-Republicans' rival political party, the Federalists, had nearly vanished by the 1820s. After the Democratic-Republicans strategically painted their counterparts as elitist and unpatriotic, the Federalist Party was in tatters. In fact, by 1824, nearly every major candidate running for federal office was a Democratic-Republican. Factionalism was publicly disdained as the country pulled together under a single-party system. But this era of good feelings would soon come to an end. Underneath the united veneer lay a deep sectionalism that was ready to ignite. Unfortunately, the era of good feelings left with Monroe. The single-party system would thoroughly shatter during the presidential election of 1824 as bitter factions from the North, South, and West fought it out for power. The chaotic start was an indication of disorder to come. Presidential candidates of the Jeffersonian Democratic-Republican Party had, till that point in time, been chosen through a congressional caucus, an informal meeting of congressmen. Yet when the congressional caucus was held on February 14, 1824, few congressmen actually attended. Just over one quarter of the Republican congressional committee showed up. Those who deferred believed the meeting was undemocratic and that more people should have a say in determining the presidential candidate. Many even argued that the Constitution specifically barred U.S. congressmen from choosing the president, deeming the caucus a corrupt workaround. The delegates from New Hampshire, for example, met prior to the meeting and voted unanimously to not attend. Maryland and Tennessee's legislatures, meanwhile, both adopted resolutions against the caucus. This splintering was bad news for William H. Crawford, the Secretary of the Treasury who'd been nominated as the caucus's Democratic-Republican candidate. Understandably, it was pretty much all Crawford supporters at the caucus. Prior to the meeting, Crawford even attempted to make an alliance with fellow cabinet member John Quincy Adams, the current Secretary of State. Crawford suggested that he and Adams nominate each other, himself for president and Adams for vice president. But Adams shut down that proposal quickly. He said he was completely against the Congressional Caucus and would never accept the lowly position of vice president. So Crawford's nomination was bittersweet. While the caucus's approval was formerly an honor, by 1824, it was a liability. And to make things worse, granted only Crawford's inner circle showed up to further his nomination, it immediately set off speculation that he was a political insider who only appealed to bureaucratic elites. So, after the caucus, state legislatures began nominating candidates of their own. One was Henry Clay, the Speaker of the House of Representatives, selected by his home state of Kentucky. Next to join was Andrew Jackson, the military hero from the War of 1812, nominated by the Tennessee legislature. And finally, John Quincy Adams, the Secretary of State under Monroe, nominated by the Massachusetts legislature. These three candidates, 
plus William Crawford, of course, would all be eligible to run. And while all four men were technically Democratic Republicans, they held widely different ideologies. Henry Clay, the seasoned Kentucky politician, quickly became known as the Candidate of the West. Having served as Speaker of the House since 1811, Clay believed he had more than enough experience to be president. Clay condensed his political beliefs into what he called his American system, a three-pronged policy focused on infrastructure, the national bank, and protectionist tariffs. Laying out a clear agenda actually made Clay one of the first presidential candidates in United States history to offer a platform for voters. And his beliefs spoke directly to the sectionalism of American politics at the time. After hearing just how many of Clay's infrastructure plans would help his home region of the Northwest, which included Kentucky and the Ohio Valley, the region responded enthusiastically. Which was a bit different than the other Western candidate, Andrew Jackson, who was pleasantly surprised to even be endorsed by the Tennessee legislature. The 57-year-old had been nearly ready to retire to his farm before he accepted his nomination. Although a famous military hero, he was best known for aiding in the decisive victory at the Battle of New Orleans in 1815, Major General Jackson did not have his opponent's robust political experience. While he served briefly as a member of the House of Representatives and governor of the Florida Territory, Jackson had failed to make much of a meaningful impact. Perhaps in a bid to popularize himself before the presidential race, Jackson ran and was elected Senator of Tennessee in 1823. Still, most politicians did not view his candidacy seriously. Jackson would have to fight against this conclusion during his entire campaign. Specifically, he tried to paint himself as a dark horse. After all, the former general was the only candidate who was well-known in every region of the country. He labeled himself as an outsider who would sweep out political corruption. This, in addition to his military fame, meant Jackson had mass appeal across the country. His beguiling charisma and his notoriously bad temper intrigued his base, which was spread throughout the Southwest and around his home state of Tennessee. The third candidate, John Quincy Adams, was the opposite of Jackson in many ways. What he lacked in military experience, he certainly made up for in reputation. He was not only the son of President John Adams, but also a former senator and minister to numerous European nations. On top of all this, at the time of the election, Adams was serving as Secretary of State, an esteemed cabinet position considered to be a coveted stepping stone. Prior to him, three former state secretaries had later become president. Despite his robust resume in politics, though, Adams didn't quite have the personal charm of his opponents. Many found him dull. It wasn't hard to see that he seemed to prefer the company of books rather than people. Still, even with his antisocial streak, Adams genuinely believed he was the best man for the job. He also felt the pressure to live up to his father's legacy. Perhaps in light of his lineage, Adams was the favored candidate of New England. And last, and arguably least, depending on who you ask, was William H. Crawford, 
the Georgian politician was in a conservative faction of the Democratic Republican Party known as the Old Republicans, or as their adversaries called them, the Radicals. Luckily for Crawford, he had some weight behind him. Thomas Jefferson, the Democratic Republicans Party founder, supported him, even deeming him the most qualified candidate in the field. Taking a cue from Jefferson, Crawford was an advocate for states' rights and small federal government, a sharp contrast to Clay's American system. In fact, as Secretary of the Treasury, Crawford was largely against tariffs and increased taxes, though his position in the government occasionally forced him to equivocate on the stance. And like Jackson, Crawford was known for his tenacity and temper. In his youth, Crawford had killed a political opponent in one duel and had been shot during another in the wrist. Unfortunately, Crawford would begin the campaign already at a disadvantage. After suffering a massive stroke in September of 1823, his health never fully recovered. He was shockingly frail. Despite his illness, though, Crawford refused to drop out. The stubborn Secretary of the Treasury held from Georgia and believed his support in the South could carry him. The four men were speeding towards the polling box, and despite their common party, each man was determined to win, no matter what it took. 1824 was the first federal election where a majority of electors were chosen by citizen voters rather than state legislatures. Only six of the 24 states of the Union still use state legislatures to choose electors for the Electoral College. As the country moved towards more direct democracy, the candidates were subsequently both blessed and cursed. They had more power than ever before, but that also meant more voters to appeal to than ever before. They'd have to appeal to both elites and the common man. Thus, 1824 was the first election to see mass-printed candidate biographies and political buttons targeted to ordinary Americans. Henry Clay, for one, loved this new change. He cheekily declared, Candidates ought to be, as in name and fact I have endeavored honestly to be, clay in the potter's hands, and the potter is the public. No lack of confidence there. But despite increased electioneering, candidates did not actively campaign on their own behalf. There was no traveling around the country, lofty promises, or stump speeches. Instead, campaigns were waged through the press and the citizens themselves. It was up to advocates of the different candidates to spread the word about their candidate of choice. Essentially, presidential nominees had to promote themselves for president without appearing to do so. That fall, all of the candidates publicly stated that they would honor tradition and not attempt to electioneer. Knowing the scheme that was to come, this was a lie of epic proportions. We'll get back to the mudslinging of our four grown men right after this. Hi, it's Richard. Can't get enough history, politics, or true crime? Well then, do I have a new Spotify original from Parcast for you. It's called Very Presidential with Ashley Flowers, and it uncovers the most damning details surrounding the world's most high-profile leaders. Every Tuesday through the 2020 election, host Ashley Flowers shines a light on the darker side of the American presidency. 
If you're a fan of our podcast, Political Scandals, you'll love what Very Presidential has lined up. From torrid love affairs and contemptible corruption to shocking cover-ups and even murder, Ashley will expose the personal and professional controversies you may never knew existed. You'll hear some wildly true stories about presidents such as Richard Nixon, George Washington, Andrew Jackson, JFK, and more. Family drama, personal vices, dirty secrets, these presidents may have run, but they most certainly can't hide. Follow Very Presidential with Ashley Flowers, free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Now, back to the story. In the fall of 1824, no less than four candidates were vying for the presidency. John Quincy Adams, Henry Clay, Andrew Jackson, and William H. Crawford. Each man knew that to secure the allegiance of American voters, he'd have to find unique ways to drum up support. So instead of descending into the fray and getting their own hands dirty, the candidates rallied political allies to do it for them. And the easiest route to undercut the competition was to spread slanderous allegations. In return, each man would deal with the bad press differently. Some with full-throated denials and others with counterattacks. John Quincy Adams, for example, was inexplicably accused in one Philadelphia newspaper of going to church barefoot and not wearing underwear. In response to such rumors, Adams complained, It seems as if every liar and calumniator in the country was at work day and night to destroy my character. Meanwhile, Henry Clay had always had rumors swirling around him. Allegedly, he was a heavy drinker, a shameless adulterer, and an inexorable gambler. These rumors were well utilized by the other candidates' supporters. One publication even alleged that Clay had lost over $8,000 in one night of gambling, the equivalent to $200,000 in today's money. Unlike Adams and Clay, though, because Andrew Jackson was not considered a serious opponent by his competition, he was initially spared from much of the press pillaging. That didn't stop Jackson favoring publications from mudslinging themselves, however. Strategically, Jackson's attacks went in a different direction than his adversaries. Rather than support the Monroe administration like Adams or criticize the president like Clay and Crawford, Jackson ran against all civil servants. He accused Washington career politicians of ignoring the Constitution and putting their own needs before the public's. Again, Jackson spun his lack of political experience to convey himself as a common man. His campaign pamphlets certainly reflected it. One proclaimed that Jackson was coming directly from the people and that he surely had their feelings, wishes, and wants in mind. As the election loomed, the one candidate that seemed in immediate danger of being suffocated by the mudslinging was William Crawford. He suffered the most intense criticism of any nominee. While in private, all four men disdained one another, Jackson, Adams, and Clay were united in their mutual contempt for him. Jackson called Crawford desperately wicked, and Adams stated, his ethics are neither sound nor deep. For good measure, Henry Clay piled on, cautioning voters, 
connect yourselves to the fortune of Mr. Crawford and lose this election. The three politicians each had a unique reason to dislike Crawford. Adams believed Crawford purposely opposed him in cabinet meetings. Clay thought his frugal tendencies as head of the Treasury endangered vital government work. Finally, Jackson was angry that Crawford had questioned his military strategies. With all three men against him, Crawford lost a great deal of early support. Despite the slanderous allegations each candidate faced, as the fall approached, all four men felt good about their prospects. It seemed like it was going to be a close race. Only time could tell which one would be president as a long period of voting took hold across America. Which, in 1824, was longer than you could imagine. In those days, voting rarely occurred on one single day. Instead, states could conduct their elections any time between October 27th and December 1st. The elections were loosely organized in every way. Almost any location could become a polling place, from a store to a private home. There was no unbiased agency in charge of printing ballots, so they were created and distributed by local newspapers or the candidates' campaigns themselves. Some citizens simply wrote their nominees on loose pieces of paper. Perhaps in light of the poor organization, despite the fierce campaigning, turnout was anemic. Only 27% of the nation's eligible white men cast a ballot. Some believed their vote wouldn't make a difference, as it was clear in certain states that one candidate was all but guaranteed to win. Others simply didn't care, believing state elections were far more important than their federal counterparts. This wasn't untrue. Granted, state officials influenced the average resident's life more than federal politicians. Nonetheless, this months-long vote still had to produce a president-elect, or so the men thought. After a long and brutal wait to tally the votes, the president-elect was determined to be... No one. Not one of the nominees had received a majority by collecting over 50% of the votes, or at least 131 of 261 votes in the Electoral College. Andrew Jackson came the closest, with 99 electoral votes, followed by Adams's 84, Crawford's 41, and finally Clay's 37. It was undeniably close, especially for Jackson and Adams, but there was still no winner. And with no candidate holding a majority, the next step was a contingent election in the House of Representatives as dictated by the 12th Amendment of the Constitution. Each of the 24 states represented in the House would then have a single vote, which their representatives would have to agree on and cast together. To win outright, one would need to receive at least 13 votes out of 24. So with great hemming and hawing, the men prepared for the next date, which was set for February 9, 1825. But the four competitors would become a trio. As the amendment indicated, only the top three candidates, Jackson, Adams, and Crawford, would compete in the runoff. So for Henry Clay, his paltry sum of votes meant he was out of the race. Despite this brief devastation, Clay shook off his grief quickly, remembering that he'd soon return to his position as Speaker of the House. There, not only would he have a vote on his pick of the three, 
but he'd also be able to levy his relationships with other representatives. Having been speaker for several years, Clay had forged many close friendships with members of the legislature. This, on top of his strong influence over other Northwestern state delegates, meant he held immense power to sway votes for whichever candidate he preferred. And soon, Crawford, Jackson, and Adams supporters would all be fighting to get Clay on their side. Sadly, Crawford's remaining campaign was in vain. By that point, he wasn't considered a serious contender by anyone besides his most devoted allies. No one believed he could survive a presidency with his illness. The race was essentially down to Adams and Jackson, the political insider versus the political outsider. Each man would once again deal with their runoff campaign in very different ways. Andrew Jackson, not as familiar with political wheeling and dealing, refrained from negotiating with members of the House. He trusted that his allies in Congress would persuade others to vote for him on the strength of his military record. John Quincy Adams was a bit more shrewd. He had anticipated that the election would potentially run off into the House and had prepared accordingly. Not only did he instruct his allies to sing his praises, but he also met with various representatives himself in order to convince them. Jackson had no idea. Meanwhile, the general strategically changed his message to be more appealing to his fellow congressmen. He moved away from his anti-corruption stance and began emphasizing himself as a pro-Westerner. He hoped it might sway states Clay had first won towards him. In his heart, though, Jackson still believed the common man, not congressman, should choose the president. After all, he had secured the most electors and the popular vote. Jackson was stubborn that his 99 electors to Adams' 84 and even more impressively, 151,000 individual votes to Adams' 113,000, served as proof he was the undeniable front-runner. As a career bureaucrat, Adams saw Jackson's assumption as foolish. He understood that votes could be swayed, regardless of the initial election's results. Adams had only won the election in seven states. He would need the support of six more states to succeed. There were a daunting 212 representatives to court, and perhaps emboldened by the task, Adams would try to impress them all. As the contingent election neared, so did the next phase of campaigning. Another round of propaganda and mudslinging. Pamphlets of denigration and celebration about the two candidates were circulated throughout Washington. Pro-Jackson publications alleged that Adams was attempting to trade diplomatic assignments in exchange for votes. Adams denied the allegations and urged President Monroe to fill the vacancies to quell the rumors. Meanwhile, one pro-Adams leaflet described Jackson as a notorious violator of every law of God and man. This was in part referring to Jackson's marriage to his wife, Rachel. Particularly nasty critics dug into the fact that the couple had accidentally married before her divorce from her first husband was officially finalized. But while Jackson was occupied day and night swatting down gossip, Adams diligently met with representatives, talking to legislators from over 17 states. 
Additionally, he and his wife spared few expenses. They hosted a number of extravagant parties to wine, dine, and schmooze with important politicians. If he could just convince enough delegates, and most importantly, Henry Clay to back him, he might be able to change his fate. But to do that, he'd have to win Clay's influence, which meant first making peace with his former adversary. We'll see if Adam's plan worked right after this. Now back to the story. Even though presidential hopefuls John Quincy Adams and Andrew Jackson had very different campaign strategies, by 1825, they both shared one belief. They each needed Henry Clay's support more than anything. In truth, Clay had already all but made up his mind. The speaker feared the idea of a military leader like Jackson having control of the government and would never agree to vote for him which left John Quincy Adams as the most appealing choice for Clay. Not that Adams knew that, though. Granted, the two men were chilly towards one another and rarely socialized publicly. But Clay could stomach his dislike for Adams, unlike Jackson, who he despised. In fact, in one of Clay's letters, he wrote, I cannot believe that the killing of 2,500 Englishmen at New Orleans qualifies for the various, difficult, and complicated duties of the chief magistracy. Clay began hinting at his position in early January of 1825 and soon requested a private meeting with Adams. There, the two men discussed their ideas on policy and visions for the future. Allegedly, there was even a brief attempt to move past their earlier disagreements. By the end, Clay supposedly confessed to Adams that after close consideration, he was sure their political beliefs were more or less the same. He would support Adams as his nominee. He did ask Adams to keep the meeting confidential, though, as he was still hoping to sway more of his allies away from Jackson. Because Clay had been the candidate of the West, many of his supporters favored a fellow Westerner like Jackson over an Eastern bureaucrat like Adams. According to both men, Adams did not explicitly promise Clay a role in his administration during this meeting. However, both politicians almost certainly knew that their alliance came with strings attached. Clay wasted no time laying the groundwork for his agenda should he so happen to receive a position in Adams' cabinet. He almost immediately introduced a number of infrastructure bills in the House to benefit his home region of the Northwest. And incredibly, Adams' New England representatives, who had previously been against Clay's policy, suddenly had a new perspective. They largely voted in favor of the bills. The New Englanders' votes made it obvious Clay would be backing Adams, leaving Jackson's supporters to scramble for a new plan. Jacksonians worked diligently to try to convince William Crawford's supporters to their side, but to no avail. Crawford's old Republican allies found Jackson too moderate and inexperienced. Louis McLean, the only representative from Delaware and an avowed Crawford voter, even stated, they might as well think of turning the Capitol upside down as for persuading him to vote for Jackson. On January 24th, 1825, the House delegations from Ohio and Kentucky publicly announced their decision early. They planned to vote for Adams. It was a blatant surprise from Kentucky's delegation, which had been directed by its state legislature to vote for Jackson. 
His supporters were dismayed, to say the least. But the Jacksonians turned their rage into action. They accused Clay of betraying both the West and democracy. Just days before, Jackson's supporters had been singing Clay's praises. Now they had completely turned on him. Adams didn't escape their outrage either. He received a number of aggressive letters from Jackson supporters that threatened bloodshed if Jackson were not elected. The general himself was sure something suspicious was afoot between Clay and Adams, and he even went back to his campaign message rallying against political corruption. If Clay and Adams thought this anger was bad, they'd soon encounter far more hostility. But Adams had one last group to reach out to. While at the national level, the Federalist Party was all but gone, there was still a small contingent of Federalists in the House. Adams believed that the election was so close that no stone should be left unturned. He was willing to chase this small group for its support. With only a few more days before the runoff election, Adams met with Federalist representatives from Maryland and New York. Despite being from the opposing party, Adams personally assured the representatives that he did not view Federalists as the enemy, like some of his opponents claimed. After all, his father, former President John Adams, had been a Federalist, and he'd been a member of the party himself until 1808. With the fears of representatives from those states quelled, Adams felt that he would perhaps be able to sway Maryland and New York's votes to him. Election Day finally came in the House on February 9, 1825. While it seemed possible that Adams could scrape by with a victory, nothing was certain. Only the final tally would tell. After the president pro tempore of the Senate began the proceedings, each state delegation met individually and cast their votes. And unsurprisingly, the six New England states voted for Adams. Unfortunately for Jackson, he failed to secure any of Crawford's states. Delaware, Georgia, Virginia, and North Carolina all still voted for the ailing politician. Then, in a surprise move, five western states, Kentucky, Ohio, Illinois, Missouri, and Louisiana, all chose Adams over Jackson. The general was shocked to learn his western state delegates had abandoned him in favor of a northerner. And to add insult to injury, John Quincy Adams' last-minute meetings with Federalists proved wise. Maryland's vote was swayed to him, which brought Adams' total to 12 states. Only one more state was needed for Adams to win the presidency. New York was the last state to submit its vote, which added to the drama, since the representatives from New York were infamous for their shifting loyalties. Everyone held their breath while they waited for the final vote. In the end, the election was decided not just by one state, but by the vote of one representative, a Federalist of all people, whom Adams supporters had of course met with. With his vote, New York shifted in Adams' favor and he secured the presidency. Andrew Jackson's confidence was shattered. In total, he'd only secured seven states' votes. His popularity with the people was irrelevant. Even Adams was astonished he had won. 
After the exhausting months-long battle, he could barely contain his joy when he exclaimed, May the blessing of God rest upon the events of this day. When Adams later encountered Jackson at a party of President Monroe's, the general was surprisingly cordial and congratulatory. He seemed determined to lie low. Accounts suggest that the next day, Jackson went so far as to refuse to attend an event hosted in his own honor. He feared it would give the impression he was upset with the election's outcome. The gentlemanliness was a facade, however. Privately, Jackson was infuriated. The former general was convinced that Adams had gained the presidency by nefarious means. Namely, Jackson was wary of the corruption that ran rampant in the Capitol and felt Adams had capitalized on the crooked deals he made in Congress. Jackson supporters around the country, too, were outraged by the results. In Pittsburgh, citizens burned an effigy of Adams and carried a mannequin of clay through the streets wearing a for sale sign. Several people close to Clay were even worried about the speaker's safety. With elections progressing towards more democratic means, citizens expected their voice to be reflected in the election's results. While Adams' victory had been completely constitutional, it seemed to ignore the people's preference for Jackson. Still, a smaller group stood by Adams, defending the new president-elect. Their argument was that if the country's founders wanted presidents to win by popular vote, they would have framed the Constitution to allow it. Naturally, Adams would need to settle his cabinet selections and make good on the lingering promise he'd made to Henry Clay. Within days, Adams officially offered Clay the position of Secretary of State. Adams would try his best to convince all of his rivals to come advise him. However, no one else was keen to join. Crawford politely declined a position as Secretary of the Treasury, and the idea of Jackson being in charge of the War Department was shut down by the General's allies before an offer could even be formalized. Henry Clay was left all by his lonesome, which made the previous alliance between himself and the new president all the more clear. Trying to avoid more controversy, Clay even delayed accepting the position. Eventually, though, Clay decided that he couldn't shirk the controversy, no matter his decision, so he accepted Adams' offer. But Clay couldn't have prepared himself for the level of vitriol he was about to face. Upon learning of their new Secretary of State, many Americans were outraged. Critics alleged that a corrupt bargain was made between Adams and Clay, where Adams offered Clay the Secretary of State position in exchange for Western states' votes. Jackson called Clay a Judas and accused him of selling the West's interests for his own profit. The general even hyperbically alleged it was the worst case of corruption that had ever happened in any country ever. More cool-headed peers noted that Adams and Clay, despite their differences, had very similar policies and thus it made perfect sense for the men to team up. Clay and Adams' former adversary, Crawford, even admitted that he too would have picked Adams over Jackson. These more reasonable voices were routinely ignored, however. Trying to protect his reputation, Clay doubled down on his claim that Jackson was not fit to be president, and the election served as proof that Adams was the best fit. Naturally, this argument only further enraged Jackson's supporters. 
So before Adams had even been inaugurated, two equally cantankerous factions were emerging. Jackson and his furious supporters, and those who stood by President Adams. This feud would continue throughout Adams' four years and set the stage for 1828. Which would be a contest unlike any before it. What had been a battle in 1824 would become a brawl in 1828. John Quincy Adams and Andrew Jackson would put aside appearances and descend into the fray. And from their fierce, bitter feud, modern American campaign politics would emerge. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with the election of 1828, otherwise known as the birth of American party politics. We'll continue the saga of Jackson versus Adams and how their antics would mark the year as one of the dirtiest campaigns in United States history. You can find all episodes of Political Scandals and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Political Scandals on Spotify, just open the app, tap Browse, and type Political Scandals in the search bar. We'll see you next time. Political Scandals was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Scott Stronick, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Travis Clark. This episode of Political Scandals was written by Matt Hartman, with writing assistance by Kate Gallagher, and stars Kate Leonard and Richard Rossner. It's the most powerful position in American politics, and arguably the world. But behind the oath to preserve, protect, and defend lie dark secrets posed to leave some legacies in disgrace. Don't forget to check out the new Spotify original from Parcast, Very Presidential with Ashley Flowers. Every Tuesday through the 2020 election, host Ashley Flowers shines a light on the darker side of the American presidency, exposing wildly true stories about history's most high-profile leaders. If you enjoy political scandals, you'll love this new series. Follow Very Presidential with Ashley Flowers free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs>